When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Welcome to the MIP. Yeah! <laughs> the Michael Podcast. You knew this was coming. Guess who? Oh. Let me start this thing off. Join me every week for the Michael Irvin Podcast. We'll give you the full MIP experience. I'm talking everything from football to fashion. I will be chopping it up with playmakers, headline makers, and I am throwing haymakers. I'm the MVP of the MIP. Don't miss it. Download new episodes of the MIP, the Michael Irvin Podcast, every Thursday on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is longtime friend of the show, Sam Vecini, NBA draft expert for The Athletic, and we have a really interesting conversation. We start out with the murky top of the draft, and then we move on to some Drew Holiday fake trades and some of the other stuff that's kind of moving around that affects potentially the top of the draft, and then we go through some of the point guard prospects and we talk about some of the guys that I've seen, and get, we share our thoughts on that, and then Sam's kind of storylines, what, what he's watching most on draft night, because this is the last time he and I are going to record before the draft which is, of course, not that far away now. So I hope you really enjoy conversations well over an hour and lots of great stuff in here. Thanks so much for coming on. Danny, It's uh, it's been great. Uh, as we were talking about before, I've been uh, locked into electric, election coverage, and now I get to go back to my day job of, uh, of talking about the NBA draft and uh, trying to figure out what players are going to be good at basketball. So let's yeah, let's start with something that's even less certain, and that is the top of the 2020 NBA draft. <laughs> I mean, so you and I had a conversation, I'm guessing it was about a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago. It was after the lottery results on just how challenging the top of this draft was to figure out because you had Minnesota and Golden State getting the top two picks and the uncertainty with, with who, whether they were even going to make those selections and, and everything else. Has anything clarified in that respect at all? No. <laughs> uh, well, not really. Uh, and then we have today Shams' report that New Orleans is taking offers for Drew Holiday now. And both of the teams at the top at one and two, I think, can make a very real substantive case for moving that pick for Drew Holiday. Like if you're Minnesota, Drew Holiday is quite literally the perfect human being to put in between Carl Anthony Towns and D'Angelo Russell. If you're Golden State and you're looking to make a splash and you're looking to take some of the defensive pressure off of Klay Thompson uh, coming off of injury, 
Drew Holiday is a perfect fit for that. You know, you allow Clay to move down the lineup, maybe not be forced to slide his feet as much against these quicker guards when he has to take on tougher assignments for Stephen Curry. I think that would really help Golden State's defense an awful lot. So I look at both of these I, I look at both of these teams at the top as no certainty to keep these picks. Uh, it also doesn't hurt that like for Minnesota, I don't think any of the top three players really make a whole lot of sense for them. And in Golden State's case, I don't think that these guys are good enough to just like toss them into a competitor immediately and say, please sink or swim. So I'm going to be really interested to see what happens with these top two picks. Like I, I get that, you know, everyone's saying the right things and the Warriors are throwing out 95 different smoke signals and Minnesota is keeping it very, very quiet. But at the end of the day, you know, Minnesota is run by Gerson Rosas, who is one of the most aggressive general managers and has been since he took over about 16 months ago, 18 months ago. And uh, Sasha Gupta, obviously, the basically the inventor of the NBA trade machine is uh, his number two in Minnesota. And then the Warriors are obviously consistently going to look to be aggressive to try and extend this timeline. So I- I'm just so fascinated to see how this whole thing goes down. Yeah, I am too. And on on the Drew Holiday front, I think the challenge that I've been having, and I was working on like a kind of a, a framework for thinking about Drew Holiday trades, is that there are a lot of really asset-poor teams that I think are really good fits for Holiday, and then there are some teams that have assets that I'm not really sure they're going to put in. And so it kind of feels similar to me to the challenges that might crop up in a Victor Oladipo trade where the team that acquires the player, in this case, Drew Holiday, would want some understanding that Holiday may or will or whatever return after the season. Like that's basically it's the whole, this is the reason the Lakers traded away the farm for Anthony Davis was because they had an understanding, not formalized in writing, not a Joe Smith situation, that he was going to come back. I mean, and and that's not a huge surprise. And so with, with Holiday, it's a real challenge because I don't know that he knows what he wants that definitively. And also remember that the the teams where he'll be, you know, it's it's this problem that happens all over the place where the teams he might be most willing to make some sort of commitment or understanding with, those are the teams that will be least willing to give, to reciprocate because they have lofty expectations. And for that, I'm talking about like the Miami Heat or the Dallas Mavericks. Like, yeah, I'm sure those teams would love to have Drew Holiday, but are they willing to foreclose functionally on Giannis or basically make it a rental to do that. I'm not sure. Well, there's that. And there's the idea of do these teams want to wait for Bradley Beal? Like, I I think that that'll be like an interesting consideration for Brooklyn, right? Like if I was Brooklyn, I would rather have Drew Holiday on this roster than Bradley Beal, because the thing that Brooklyn needs more than anything right now, I think is a strong two way perimeter defensive stopper. Bradley Beal most certainly is not that. And Drew Holiday is that. And I think that would be the perfect fit with what Kyrie and KD need uh, to actualize their talents on that roster. But does Brooklyn see it that way? Or does Brooklyn want to wait out Washington and try and open up a two-year window with Kyrie, KD, and Bradley Beal and all of the other guys that they have? Does Denver put Michael Porter in an offer? Does New Orleans actually want Michael Porter? Because they already have Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson. You know, does a Golden State offer with the number two pick, is it actually interesting 
to New Orleans? Do they see themselves as uh, being more of a long play with Ingram and Williamson, or do they see themselves as competitors now? Like, I I don't know the answer to these questions yet. Right. And it's good that David Griffin got, you know, most of the way to a full season with getting to evaluate this roster. Now, it didn't get a full season to evaluate it with Zion, that's for sure. But there are so many big decisions, and this is something I wrote about at the time of when the Davis trade happened, that the timeline that the Pelicans generated by that trade was a lot faster. And now, in some cases, that's worked out really well. Brandon Ingram had an awesome year, most improved player, looks like a, a, a foundational piece who fits a lot better with Zion now that he can actually shoot. But Lonzo Ball, Josh Hart, right around the corner. Yep. And so they have to figure out where all this is going. And Potentially moving Drew, I mean, first of all, they obviously should have listened. I mean, we should be listening on Drew. He's not at that at that non at non-negotiable level. And, you know, if he's if you're not expecting that he will come back, then you should absolutely move him just because the opportunity cost of waiting is to, is too high. The cost is too high. And so I'm happy you got into though what I've been lingering on the last couple hours is the idea of, you know, those top picks potentially going somewhere to to New Orleans. And I, so a good way of thinking about that is, well, what would they do with it? And yes, sure, theoretically, they could move that somewhere else. That was actually something New Orleans did in part with the Lakers stuff. You know, they moved, remember, they moved down from the DeAndre Hunter pick and got more picks and all that. But I don't know of anybody on the board at two or one, so on the board, that is a an excellent fit. I mean, LaMelo, especially if incidentally, if they, if they're not completely sold on Lonzo, LaMelo would be a worthwhile roll of the dice. Wiseman feels really superfluous though. I'm interested in your thoughts on that because maybe you think Wiseman shot is enough and then maybe he can be the unicorn. Uh, And then I think of Edwards as a, you know, a weird, a weird kind of fit, especially if the jump shot is less real. Um, But so, so if you were new, or if you're David Griffin, you know this draft far better than I do. How would you be feeling about a top to a top four pick? So, let's let's just like put everyone on the board for New Orleans, right? I actually would be somewhat interested in a James Wiseman fit because the one thing that this New Orleans team desperately needs is defense. And I am a believer in James Wiseman being a very, very high level, potentially all defense team kind of guy because of the elite level that he's going to protect the rim at. Having said that, they just used the number eight overall pick on Jackson Hayes last year, and that's not exactly terrific asset allocation, right? So it would be tough for me to do that. Uh, let, let's look at LaMelo Ball. Frankly, I would love the fit of LaMelo Ball with Lonzo because Lonzo does a lot of what LaMelo does not do. And LaMelo does a lot of what Lonzo does not do. LaMelo is an elite level live dribble passer, elite level live dribble creator with an unbelievable handle. Lonzo is one of the best ball movers in the NBA, but and he can do it off of a live dribble, but is not necessarily like that kind of playmaking live dribble passer that his brother is. Lonzo has morphed into a potentially at some point all NBA defender. Uh, Lamelo has some concerns there. I would be terrified about making my team the ball family hub especially when I already have Zion Williamson and I already have Brandon Ingram. It could go really well. It could end with Brandon Ingram just being like, screw this, I'm out. Uh, This is miserable. So I would 
I don't think I would do that. The Anthony Edwards thing is actually kind of the perfect medium here. Anthony Edwards is a guy that can create a jump shot at an exceedingly high level and would be an excellent fit as kind of a pseudo lead next to Lonzo doing kind of everything that Lonzo does uh, as a team player. He's a good catch and shoot shooter. Now he's an unbelievable ball mover. He's great in transition. Anthony Edwards would be awesome in transition with the rest of this team. I actually really like the Anthony Edwards fit there. Uh, If you think that Edwards is going to really focus in and learn to defend on some level and learn what his rotations have to be and lock in all the time. I I really like it. I really like the idea of putting Anthony Edwards on new Orleans. So that, that would be my move. If I was them, I I would take Edwards, but in in what I take Edwards as like the centerpiece for a drew holiday deal. I do. I think that, you know, potentially seven to nine years of Anthony Edwards is worth more than one year of drew holiday. And I think that you can probably make a case that seven to nine years of Anthony Edwards is probably a better acquisition as a centerpiece than three years of Karis LeVert if Brooklyn wanted to get involved, or uh, it's a better fit with the rest of that roster than six years of Michael Porter Jr. So I probably would go that route, I think. But it's tough. I I think that it depends on where New Orleans sees its own timeline right now. Right. And like you could think of a more win now type of option, though he's still fairly young, would be somebody maybe like Miles Turner if the Pacers wanted to get involved. By the way, I think that Drew Holiday and Brogdon would be a really fun backcourt for the Pacers. It would also potentially create Holiday Voltron, which would be pretty fun. But that, and, and also theoretically, that could incidentally, I think it would open, it could open the door for a Victor Oladipo trade, but not to New Orleans. Maybe New Orleans wants him, but maybe they would rather have Miles Turner. I, I could see either of those frameworks working. And so you could go that. And, and I don't know exactly what Indiana wants. I don't know what Drew Holiday wants, but that's the, that's another kind of concept that I've been intrigued by. My favorite Oladipo landing spot right now is Dallas. You could say the same for Drew Holiday as well. Like, I love Drew Holiday in Dallas. But I think that Oladipo probably goes for, I don't want to say considerably less than Drew, but I I think that, like, Drew is very clearly a safer asset that we know will perform at an exceedingly high level in the playoffs. Whereas with Oladipo, we don't quite know what he is after the last two years. I would say we should feel pretty good that he's going to be a very, very high level player. But if you're Dallas, what you can do is you can move something like Tim Hardaway Jr. 18 and 31 for Victor Oladipo. And I think that's a pretty good offer. Like I I would think that he probably goes for not much more than that. Right. Well, so if that's what it takes for Dallas, if it's something more in that line, or there could potentially be a way, depending on how Indiana's feeling about their space, that maybe Dallas could get off of some money in that deal. Like maybe maybe they, they do something like that and they can throw somebody like Dwight Powell sure. or th- there might be another way to do it. You, the, you could do DeLon Wright and Powell yeah, DeLon, to make the money. I think DeLon Wright yeah, would but, be a worthwhile guy for, for Indiana to add to the rotation. And so I right. think that – Something in, in along those lines, the the really fascinating wrinkle, and this is kind of it gets along. I've thought a lot about Dallas's offseason, is that doesn't close the door. So like there are certain acquisitions where you know you're getting a guy for multiple years, and you're saying, okay, we have to, we're, we're not. It's going to be really hard to get Giannis or whoever you know, of of the 2021 class if we do this. 
Victor Oladipo doesn't close that door. I don't, I don't think he does. And he, he might well, come back. Money-wise, it doesn't close the door. Right. Like it just in terms of the salary cap, if you move off of Dwight Powell and DeLon Wright, you're fine in terms of what Oladipo. Well, and, you could, and not, you could o- pair and not Oladipo, only that, but you could also like and someone. You'd also be fine if you had to renounce the cap hold to Victor Oladipo and let him become like you know let him go somewhere else because you needed that space to get Giannis. Cool, <laughs> you know, like that's not a problem. Like that, that's you know, it's it's maybe not the greatest piece of asset management, but it's not the worst thing in the world. And I, I think that there, but you, it's 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 a lot easier to kind of make that decision. Granted, there's also a chance that you know the player you want decides later than Oladipo, and that he kind of makes the choice for you. But yeah, I, I think that's a worthwhile idea. And I, another way to frame the Oladipo holiday trade returns is because of the injury in particular, but also just I mean we we have a different kind of track record for Drew than we do for Oladipo. Is mm-hmm. I, I think that he's not only a more established commodity, but because of the injury, we don't know exactly what Victor Oladipo is going to be. So I'm very interested in in where if those guys move, what the relative returns are, and for Oladipo, if there's a possibility that if the return gets so kind of if it gets tepid, and I think there's a reason to believe that it could, whether they just go you know fine, we'll just we'll just do it again. We'll just, I mean we'll just hold on to him and see what happens. Maybe he maybe Oladipo can prove himself in. February by by February and then you end up yeah. or March or whenever the trade I guess the trade line will probably be maybe around St. Patrick's Day I haven't worked out all the numbers on that um and then and by that point you you basically say well it was a worthwhile gamble and maybe you resign him maybe he's awesome and he wants to come back and everything else what do you think the price that what do you think that I guess Indiana's breaking point is on a deal like that because I, I've been trying to figure that out like I, I think totally their breaking. I think their breaking that, point is a steeper return than it would be for me. I'll, I'll tell you that right now. I think. Yeah, like if if I was them, it would be if I got a Dallas offer of eighteen and thirty one, plus like Delon Wright and you know maybe not Dwight. I might need someone else other than Dwight because the injury there really really scares me with that contract. But something like that interests me a lot for Indiana, and, and I would not turn that down. I wouldn't either. I absolutely wouldn't. And and I'm not sure that Kevin Pritchard would either. Um, and I also will note that I don't think that is a strong enough return for the Pels for True Holiday. From Though, incidentally, yeah. you could make an argument, depending on where they're going, that New Orleans... I, I think New Orleans, if they trade Drew, then they're could. Then they looking more like they're going to be a cap space team next year. But that doesn't have to be a guarantee. It's, it's, all, yeah. so, it's all so crazy. I, I'm, I'm, I am very excited about it. Yeah, the offseason this year and how much teams try to maintain cap space going forward is going to be fascinated or fascinating. Like I'm not entirely sure how to wrap my head around that yet. <laughs> I, I like to help myself. I actually wrote a piece for the athletic. You don't know about this. That's coming out. I think on Friday about waiting versus waiting versus not is really what the, the, the idea was and kind of how, how that can work. I was, I was partially with a conversation with Dan Feldman last week that we were talking about it about. So like for me, the so there are a couple different I'll, I'll summarize it now because why not um there are a couple different camps so the group that it's definitely worth waiting for like the group that's definitely should wait are teams that have a what i called a credible shot of getting an elite level player 
And I think that group is pretty small. I think it's Miami, Toronto, and then there are a couple that like have an outside chance like Dallas, like maybe the, the another sexy young team that could be New Orleans, could be Atlanta, whatever. That group is really small. Um, they are, but they are heavy hitters, and there is a real opportunity cost there. You know, like Miami. That's that's the whole idea of like not giving basically anybody multiple seasons, and that could be an inflection point for Serge Ibaka, maybe for Marcus Hull as well. Okay, the best players in that class are worth it. That's that's camp number one. Uh, I, I'm guessing you don't have much disagreement there. No, I don't think I do. Then camp number two is, and this is the one that I think is the most nebulous, is teams where that second tier of free agent, first of all, that they have a credible shot at them and that they would really move the needle. And so that for me is, originally it was, I was thinking Holiday and Oladipo. And then when I really kind of pondered on it, I'm like, Gobert counts there too for me. I, I think of him, you know, he's a very different player in terms of, but in terms of overall impact, I think that's a fair a fair proxy. We also don't know what the heck's happening with Gobert and the Jazz. So I thought it was he was a fair inclusion. And so for me, if if one of those guys could consider you and it could move the needle, then it becomes more tolerable to wait, even if you kind of like quote unquote strike out. And so for me, the interesting teams there were Dallas and maybe Atlanta. Because like I think at, uh, and and Miami could obviously they'd be a natural holiday destination if they don't get the best players too. I think that Holiday would actually be a really fun fit with Jimmy Butler, and I could imagine him yep. fitting in beautifully. So that puts Miami, puts Miami more firmly in that camp, though they were already in there anyway. Um, and so, but for me, teams. So like the the idea that I articulated in that was that for me, Drew and Oladipo are both better when you already have the primary ball handler, the offensive linchpin, you know, the best, the, the the lead guy of your offense in place. And so that's why I think both are really interesting fit with Dallas, as you talked about. Uh, but, and, and theoretically, maybe Atlanta, just because if Trey Young becomes that guy, that could be a possibility. So, okay, so you have those two. And then the third camp, and this is the one that's the least fun, but is also worth noting, is teams that just want it as an out, like it basically is an excuse to not spend money this year. And (laughs) as a practical consideration, like that is a boogeyman that I think is going to be useful for certain teams. Oh, it's a great class. You know, we're very excited. We want to maintain our flexibility. And because 2021 is so star heavy, I think that some teams will get away with that. And that's more probably signing a guy for one year with the mid-level rather than two or three, those sorts of decisions. And I think a lot of teams are going to do that. And sure, it will strain credibility in certain cases, but I think overall that will, that will have some, that will have some weight. And then for everybody else, I think waiting is probably mostly a bad idea. I mean, it really is about what opportunities are you turning down? But like, for example, I, I didn't write this in the piece, but this could be in another one. I, I kind of was thinking about like, well, who might make the wrong decision? And so for me, I was thinking about teams like Chicago and the Knicks, where there might be an opportunity for a, a, a multi-season, you know, like an imbalanced, not in terms of current salary, but in terms of future salary deal that they might just have a little bit of sticker shock, but might be they might be better off doing that. And then the other one potentially is like Dallas using the mid-level or some of those other teams where it's like, hey, that would help you yep. out. So we'll we'll, uh, we'll we'll see. I mean, but I think I think that's kind of where I would draw the lines right now. And it's also possible, but not probable, that getting a firm number for or getting a better idea of where the cap's going to be next year could change some of that a little bit. But I don't think so. I think the theory of it is pretty sound. Well, Phoenix is fascinating in general to me because if I was them, I, I would probably go all out to try and get Fred Van Vliet this year. 
because I would want that bird in hand versus like the carrot that's like dangling on the end of the string, like one year out from now that you could potentially try and get like a max guy like Drew Holiday, who, by the way, like we haven't talked about Phoenix as a Drew Holiday fit. Oh, boy. Oh, yes. That's the one like that. It's a great one. That's the I mean, I've been banging the Fred Van Vliet to Phoenix drum for a couple for a couple weeks now. And it's the same basic idea. Yeah. Like if I was Phoenix, I'd probably try to get Fred Van Vliet for free as opposed to trying to trade actual value for Drew Holiday. But man, you put Drew Holiday on Phoenix next year. That is a scary, scary team, I think. That is a really, really good team because it's one of the best backcourts in the NBA. And if you believe in any regard that DeAndre Ayton is going to be uh, a star center like I do, oh man. Um, And they have the pieces. Like It would probably have to involve Mikael Bridges, which is not a piece that I think Phoenix should want to give up. Also, Mikael Bridges, I think, would be a really good fit in New Orleans. I think he would too, especially given some of the questions we've seen around Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson defensively. Uh, Zion was a much better defender at Duke, and I have a lot of faith that once he actually gets into real basketball shape, he will hopefully get better defensively and not look as lost out there and you know not look like a new puppy dog that is trying to learn on the fly where his rotations are defensively in the NBA. But that jury remains out. So finding a way to get someone who can be an elite level defender to replace the already elite level defense that Drew provides, I think that that should be a pretty big priority for New Orleans in a deal like this. Also, Phoenix's draft pick is pretty good. I mean, they could, depending on when this deal, sure. when, when a deal could happen. Now, Phoenix to me runs into the same problem as, let's say, Denver, where what they could give up is they they have enough ammo, but would they do that without some sort of understanding that he's going to come back? Because you both those teams doing it for a rental doesn't make much sense. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, there's no way that we think New Orleans takes Cam Johnson in number ten for Drew, right? I don't think so. No, I mean, unless there's somebody they absolutely. I, I I don't. Expect, but I mean, but when you consider that Phoenix's matching salary actually isn't terrible. Like, I mean, Kelly Oubre is probably some of the matching salary there. That's not terrible. Kelly Oubre, Cam Johnson, and ten. Like you're getting closer there. I'd still probably just rather have number two in expiring salary, right? If because like what what I mean if the, but see but the Warriors do don't is, have expiring salary. I mean maybe you could yeah try they to... they do because they can like if you're Minnesota you almost certainly are willing to trade James Johnson into oh that oh sorry I thought I thought you were I right? thought you were, that's number one yeah okay yeah yeah like if you want to get expiring salary if you're Golden State you can almost certainly do so right because if you're Minnesota you then get a trade exception for taking James Johnson into that trade exception which is better than having James Johnson on that roster right i mean and 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 hilariously enough minnesota would probably sacrifice something modest but small for the privilege which could either then go into drew holiday trade or just do something else right so if i was golden state like and i had a deal done right for drew like that's an easy deal to make in my opinion is just taking that and then moving it along with like drew in number two, if you wait 30 days after the pick signs and then you can do it like the Cavs did with Andrew Wiggins, Wiggins or yeah, or you can just involve Kavon Looney because that gets to you to the money you need for Drew as well. So there are a lot of ways that you can go about doing it. It's 
I think I'd probably just rather have number two and expiring if I was New Orleans. Oh, versus... come on. You wouldn't rather have Ranger Wiggins? Well, Hollinger brought that up to me earlier, actually, which I thought was interesting. Like, I was being sarcastic, but I think there, for some people, there might be an I think so. I well, just... Hollinger, Hollinger brought up the idea of like, and I think he's written it before, so I'm like not breaking something that like Hollinger is going to write. Uh, he brought up drew in JJ Reddick for Wiggins um, and essentially two draft picks from golden state. It'd be like Wiggins Looney and two draft picks or something. And I, I said like, I would still just rather have the pick I think. Right. I would too. Like I, I just wouldn't want to deal with Wiggins on that roster. Cause it, you, you then have to move Wiggins because he really doesn't fit with Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson. Um, now I'm trying to figure like, out if there's a way to involve Minnesota in this and get Wiggins back there. I don't think oh, there no. is. I don't think they want that though. <laughs> What they want doesn't matter for my fun hypotheticals. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it's fascinating, though. Like, it's really interesting trying to figure out where all of these little uh, pressure points are across the board, right? Because they are there and figuring out where they're going to fall because so many teams can make a real case for trying to compete next year. Uh, there is no like the Lakers are a dominant team, but there is no Golden State Warriors from two years ago. Where you think that like, okay, maybe I should extend my window out two years. Everyone should be looking to try and compete next year, especially if you're in the Eastern Conference right now, where Brooklyn, there's uncertainty. Miami, there's some uncertainty in terms of like, if they just decide to run this back, does a year older Goron, a year older Jay Crowder, a year older Jimmy Butler, like, is there five to 10% drop off there? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Philadelphia, there's certainly uncertainty. Uh, the most certain thing right now might be Boston because Toronto has to deal with Fred Van Vliet uh, and his upcoming free agency. So if I was, if I was an Eastern conference team and I was like, for instance, Brooklyn, like I would be selling out to try and get Drew holiday uh, this summer. Cause I, I think that he's the kind of guy that can make a very real difference for them. Even if it involves giving up Karis Levert. Right. And while I think Levert is a positive, probably a positive value contract, I don't think it's dramatically so. So if he's one, basically one of the best things that's going. And I also, you know, we talked about the issues of Wiseman with Jackson Hayes and Zion there. Jared Allen brings those and he's becomes a becomes a restricted free agent and thus properly paid a lot sooner. So then that that becomes a real issue. And I'm here. Let me I have a hilarious, dumb thing that I just thought about. OK, what if. <laughs> What if uh, Boston saw the way Kemba Walker played in the playoffs? Do you think that New Orleans would be interested in getting three years of Kemba Walker? <laughs> I don't. I, I think that he's just too far off the timeline. I think I agree with you. But, like, could you make a case that three years of Kemba Walker is better than three years of Karis LeVert or three years of, um, you know, X other star? Sure. Maybe. But I'd, I'd still rather have the pick if I was New Orleans. Don't get me wrong. But, like, I'm just trying to throw out, like, random ideas. Would Boston pay to get off of the Kemba Walker deal? Like, would Boston throw in 26 and 30 plus Kemba? <laughs> I don't... Uh, I don't think so. I don't think like, so, I don't think but that maybe. they're that far off of... Like, I don't think that they think Kemba is, like, an albatross, which I don't either, for what it's worth. But, I mean, you have Drew Holiday. That's a better fit for the playoffs. It's a better fit for the roster, in my opinion. I, I don't... I don't there's a real case to be made there, I guess, uh, that, that gets interesting if I was Boston. And plus, the other part of it is you take Drew Holiday away from another team that could potentially get him in the East. Yeah, that's true. 
And there is there is value in that, of course. Yeah. And that's a stupid hypothetical that will literally never happen. <laughs> but still fun. Yeah. I was thinking another kind of avenue that we could go through for a little conversation. I don't think we want to spend a ton of time on this. Is I've watched film on a couple of guys since the last time we talked, and I thought we could have we could now now that now we could have more informed conversations. Um, I'm honestly so excited to do this because I'm genuinely like so curious what people who live in the NBA world all year think of these draft prospects. Yeah, it is, and it is a challenging class to evaluate partially the film on some of these guys is really weird because there were some players yep. who were hurt a lot players who were in various weird i mean wiseman in some ways is in some ways the most challenging because he was just barely played um so i'll start with uh denny of dia so, i there there are th- things that i like about him you know like i think that the ball moves pretty well with him i think that he like but I don't think that his and he the defensive film on FDA was far better than I anticipated it, which was which was fun. I mean, he's, yeah. he's active, he tries, but yeah, he, he's not a negative defender. No, I no, but I, I don't th- think he's necessarily going to be like an elite level defender or even like a real positive. But like, I can see him being a part of like positive defensive teams. But what sours me on him uh, in terms of like being, let's say, like a surefire or anything like that NBA starter is players who aren't great athletes and who aren't reliable shooters at the forward spots. It's just really hard. Like, I mean, so and, and who aren't like, I don't think he's dynamic enough to run an offense or anything like that. And that's not a yeah. huge criticism. But when you can't do the other stuff, that becomes a bigger problem. And so I see a path for him to be a valued part of a good, especially a good team. I think Avdia would be better on a good team than a bad one, though he's better as a gap filler on a bad one, of course, just like anybody else. Uh, and but I think that that sort of player, especially when you consider that, like he has upside, but I think it's a little bit more faint and it's not superstar upside. I think that that's you know that to me that pushes him down the board a little bit. I that that I think I'll like him. I think I'll you know enjoy watching him in well he's probably not going to play in summer league, but you know those sorts of things um in the interim and there is a chance that it totally works out. But the flaw I have trouble getting over, you know, that players like that so rarely really thrive. Yes. I I'm struggling with Denny as well. I I've kind of oscillated between like 789 for Denny on my board. Mhm. I, I love his feel for the game. I think that one thing he does really well that's going to make him a really strong complementary piece in the NBA is he's an excellent cutter. He yes. is such a smart cutter, and he's a really, really underrated finisher. He has more bounce than what I think people give him credit for. Uh, he really made a lot of shots uh, around the basket this year. And that helps him translate into being a reasonable off-ball player if the shooting doesn't totally translate. The passing, I think, is probably a little bit better in the open floor than it is in the half court, given what the role will be. Because, like, you're not just going to clear out and run, like, four, five, three, five pick and rolls with Denny. Because he is a really good passer in pick and roll. But you're going to have better options than Denny is like a primary offensive creator. Like if it's the Warriors at two, Stephen Curry is probably a better creator. Uh, If it is, um, you know, like Cleveland at five, like maybe you can make a case that Denny would be a better option than Colin Sexton. But like, look, Colin Sexton breaks down defenses like he actually does get into the teeth of the defense regularly in a way that Denny might struggle with a little bit. So 
then he, then he's really tough because the handle I don't think is quite there for him to be uh, a primary and consistently break down defenses. And the defense is going to be good, not great. And the jumper is like a significant concern. Uh, 350 free throw attempts in professional and international play has made 56%, uh, consistently between 50 and 60%. Like there's no real like spikes there. Uh, this season, Avdia took 153 attempts directly off the catch and made them at a 50.7 effective field goal percentage. That's like a non-disaster number, but none of that really comes off of movement. Like if if he has to shoot on the move or if he has to like take a relocation dribble, the mechanics really fall apart as a shooter. So that, that that's the swing skill here. If he can be a shooter, he's going to be a starter. If he's a 34% shooter from three, he's like a fifth starter slash like the sixth man that you bring off the bench to run the second team offense, which is valuable. And like, he's definitely an NBA player, but it's there. There are real diminishing returns. If he's anything less than a good shooter. Right. And you and I talk a lot about the value of drafting forward sized players. That's something that's been a, a through line for you and I talking about that both on the podcast and in our off the air time. But there is a kind of an, an, maybe it's understated part that it's really like starter level players. Because there are, you know, if, you, if you're looking more in the kind of rotation level, yeah, somebody like Avdia could help you. But it's not, especially if you can't scale them in. And the, the upside for me, I'd rather, I'd rather kind of roll the dice on somebody who has more physical talent and isn't as good of a player as him if you have to kind of choose between the two. Because I think it's more likely that they get there, and it's the combination of jump shot and athleticism that's the really big problem. And, and as you said, like the versatility of, of of DH jumper, like even if he becomes like a you know a standstill type of guy, then that's still a, a much smaller value add than somebody who can do a little bit more with movement. And I think Avdia has the right basketball IQ to do those things. He just doesn't have the shot. Yeah, like it's not like he can't be effective as an on the move player. Because his feel for where the soft spot is in the defense is really strong. Like if you used him as the screener, like on the baseline or as the screener uh, in pin down actions and then had him cut to the basket or, you know, just kind of float out there like a little bit in the corner and then he sees the drive and then he comes in from the corner as the cutter. Like he's going to time all of that perfectly and he's going to be really effective at doing it. And I think he can be an effective part of a team's offense, even if he's not a great shooter. But then he's like a fifth starter slash, you know, sixth man who maybe closes games sometimes. Uh, That's, you know, more of a guy that you take 10 to 20 than a guy that you take at number four or number five. Yeah, I, I, I think that's I think that's definitely true. We can move on to. I think I'll go Tyrese Halliburton next. So Halliburton, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit kind of between a few different camps there. So I think there are some people who are more confident in his ability to be the lead ball handler in a successful offense. I'm not there with Halliburton. He does, he, most of his pops as a creator are actually in transition. And that's, it's nice that he has those, but that's a problem because you're you know you're not facing a set defense he wasn't beating his guy as much as i liked however with Halliburton sort of paralleling Nikhil Alexander Walker a little bit what i did really like is i think that Halliburton's game 
fits well as a complementary player. I think that his jump shot, it's weird, but it seems pretty consistent. We have enough we have enough of a sample and I mean we have enough film. I and I also think it can be improved. And as a secondary creator, I think his game totally works and he's versatile enough defensively. I think that he has the right tools in terms of steals and everything else. So I think that I think that he, you know, so like maybe the my 75% outcome with Halliburton is lower than most people, but my 50% outcome might actually be higher. I agree with you on all of that. I don't love him in ball screen scenarios because, A, I don't think he really has much of a pull-up game to stand on right now. He has a very low release point. Uh, He has kind of an awkward load into the jump shot. Uh, He has very clear touch, but he just has a lot of things wrong with the jumper that I think are going to take a lot of time to really fix. Also, his footwork in pick and rolls like isn't ideal. And then on top of it, he has an annoying tendency to jump pass. I'm not even someone who thinks that the jump pass is like something that guys should never do. Like I think that there are real reasons to go to it from time to time. But it's just not always the best option when you do it constantly especially in the nba where those passing windows they really close down once you go in the air and you put yourself in no man's land and you have to make a pass so the fact that he does that every time i think is a concern versus just doing it sometimes like i think it's a good tool to have in his toolbox um i will also say like defensively he's much better off the ball than he is on the ball part of that could be a strength thing uh where he just isn't strong enough. Like he does get bullied from time to time and he does just get blown by from time to time. He's not overly long, but for a point guard, he is long. like he's six foot five with a six foot seven wingspan or so. Um, and even though the wingspan is only like plus two or so, it might be plus three whenever you take off his shoes. He plays bigger than that yes. because he's so big for the position, but He's much more effective, like shooting passing lanes, playing gaps, digging down, rotating, uh, scrambling, just kind of being all over the court and help defense than he is on the ball where he can get driven kind of constantly. So I think that all of this fits into him being a better player playing off of advantages off the catch than it does playing as like a primary guy consistently game in, game out. It also helps that, like I said, he does have some real touches of shooter. I think that he is probably pretty close to like a 38 to 40% three point shooter from beyond the NBA line off the catch. Like I think he will knock down shots at a high level off the catch. Right. And I'm really happy you got into the other nuance that makes Halliburton unusual for somebody who was in most respects, a college point guard is I think he's a, I think he's better off ball on both ends of the floor. I think he's a two. Like, I think, you know, that's the the parallel I made with Nikhil is like, I think both of those guys, you know, Nikhil shown more, he had more verve on ball in summer league. And, and, and when I watched some of the Vatek film, than I expected but it's the same kind of basic idea and it's like well he has the size to potentially do it and so I think Halliburton's path to being a starter is at the two but yeah he could be a, if, you, if you're needing a like a, a caretaker or backup one sure he can do that and sometimes a team a player can do both but generally speaking you know the, as a practical consideration you don't use your starting one or starting two as your backup one just because that's kind of too it's too many things for one guy to do and it's very a very specific rotation to run uh, but so, but I think it's still value value added for Halliburton. 
can go to well, kill. That, oh, sorry, go that's, ahead. that's where the fit for Atlanta I actually think makes a lot of sense. Sure. Like people are going to yell at me and be like, yeah, why would we want to take a third guard at number six overall? Well, he can close games as that third guard. Potentially he's really going to help them out in transition. He would be able to come on the court with Trey young and play as an on ball point guard, moving Trey off for stretches of games. Like I don't think he can do it all the time, but I think there are going to be like five to 10 minutes a game that he can do it and not really kill you. And then potentially you get more derived value by pushing Trey off the ball sometimes and just giving defenses different looks. Um, he just fills a lot of gaps for what Atlanta is looking for. Unfortunately, the one gap that he doesn't fill is on-ball defense. And that's why I kind of am swinging toward liking Okoro a little bit more there than um, than Halliburton. But I really like Halliburton as an overall player. And I think he's going to be in the NBA for like a decade plus and probably be a starting caliber player for a while. I, I'm not as confident he'll be a starting caliber player but i think there's a distinct a distinct possibility of it and i i am interested in it we can move to killian hayes um hayes is is interesting for me because i there were times when i when i really liked his film where you know you could he's he he shows some flashes periodically like he has some some nice plays where he beats his guy and gets a dunk but there were also some some real frustrations and just like a lot of guys in this class i'm not I'm not sold on him having the kind of the on-ball dominance to really work. And the challenge with Hayes versus Halliburton is I think there's a a higher chance that Hayes can be an on-ball player at a a modestly successful level than Halliburton. But Halliburton has other stuff. So like if that doesn't work. And so this is, you know, going back to, I mean, not that I'm comparing Hayes to Dante Exum, but it was that whole Exum Nilakina idea. It's like, well, if the best thing doesn't work, can they still be a viable player? And with Killian Hayes, it's like, he could still absolutely be a backup, but he's not, he doesn't have as much other stuff. He can't be a two in the way that Halliburton can. Yeah, generally agree with that. Uh, I think that the floor is lower for Hayes. I think the ceiling is higher for Hayes. He's a much yeah. better live dribble passer, for instance. It's all with his left hand, but yes. Is. Yeah, that's the next thing I was going to bring up. I, I do have some pretty real concerns about him getting consistent separation from the lead guard position. And it's all change of pace, all like inside out dribble, all like just, you know, moving his shoulders, uh, like, you know, doing like a little shoulder feint to try and, you know, get defenders slightly off balance. And he is good at accelerating once he sees that that defender is slightly off balance, but it's literally all with his left hand. It is wild to me how much he uses his left hand uh, in comparison to his right. Uh, I went through and watched all of his assists last year. I am pretty sure that I did not see one right-handed live dribble pass the entire year. Uh, he does some things sometimes where he like puts both hands on the ball steadies and like makes like a strong kick out, but it's basically all with the left hand. And then even as a ball handler, like, yeah, sometimes he'll try to cross, you know, go left to right, but like he doesn't really push uh, off of his left foot uh, with his right hand to try and like get to the basket. And then once he gets to the basket, he has a lot of shit to his game where like he has all of these weird foot finishes. He has all of these, uh, you know, almost like Manu style off finishes, right? Like Manu comes to mind cause he's left-handed mm-hmm. for some reason to me. Um, but it's always with his right. It's 
every single one. Like he passed up a lot of opportunities this year where it made a lot more sense to finish with his right because he's just so left-hand dominant in a very real way. Yeah, and it's going to take a lot of skill development for that to change. Uh, I wanted to, because you've watched a lot of film on Hayes as well, how do you feel about his athleticism, you know, like compared to the, like, can't, not not necessarily compared with comp- combined with his handle, though you can think about it from that perspective too. I was, you know, I, I didn't think it was terrible, but it also like didn't blow me away. Yeah, I don't think he's a crazy athlete. I think no. he would probably be, I mean, compared to starting point guards in the NBA where the standard is like exceptionally high for being an athlete, like he's probably a below average athlete compared to starting point guards in the NBA. But it's also an exceptionally high standard to meet. And he's six foot five and has like real size and is very strong. Like he's a well-built 215 pounds. So yeah, like I, I don't see the burst in a real way. I don't see the uh, vertical explosiveness like that, you know, typically these lead guards have. I have Hayes in a similar range to where I have Denny. I have them, you know, seven, eight, nine, like right in that range. And uh, I, I wouldn't hate it for a team like the Knicks. I, I wouldn't hate it for a team like Detroit uh, to take him. I, I frankly wouldn't hate it for a team like Washington or Phoenix to take him. Uh, Phoenix would actually be really interesting because then be, they'd be able to just play super switchable all the time because both of their guys in the backcourt would potentially be six foot five. But I don't I don't see like the crazy, like consistent game in, game out, possession by possession upside that some people do. Like you brought up the flashes right earlier. Like you see these things with him where he looks like he does these NBA caliber moves. Like he has the Dame Lillard, James Harden, like side sidestep step back jumper. Right. And a lot of the people that get really excited about him see him as like an awesome pull up jumper, jump shooter. He's a much better pull-up jump shooter than he is off the catch, but he doesn't really knock those shots down in a level commensurate with being like this crazy elite level shooter. And you see him with these crazy off-foot finishes sometimes, and you see these incredible live dribble passes. It's mostly just like highlights. It's not like game in, game out, possession by possession. Every game, he probably has like two or three of those crazy highlights, but then you go through and you watch the full game and it's not quite there in the way that you want it to be. Uh, I think he's the top 10 pick. Like I, I'm really intrigued by him. And I think that like, he's a really good prospect that any team would be very happy to go down the road of developing. But like, you know, like I, I'm not calling out Kevin by any stretch. Like Kevin's like one of the nicest human beings on the planet. And I really, really respect him. But like Kevin O'Connor has him at number one. And I, I don't, I'm not there, I would say. Uh, and this is certainly a draft where there's going to be a lot of a disagree, a lot of disagreement. And I totally 100% like get that. But, you know, I, I just, I'm, I'm not quite there, I would say. The, the example that I would use and not that anybody in this class necessarily has to be at this level, is the difference between Killian Hayes and De'Aaron Fox. So Hayes has intriguing talent, but he doesn't have that, you know, like a, a real fallback. And and, and De'Aaron Fox, you know, he, his passing ability, as you know, like the film on him wasn't amazing. You know, I liked his defense potential, but he was a, a nuts athlete. And so you kind of yeah. went, okay, if this can be applied, it can work. And with Killian Hayes... It, to me, in order for him to be a really good player, you know, like that 
above average starter level, much less all NBA or MVP or anything like that. He needs all of these quote unquote small, but very important things to to work. And a lot of that is player development. You know, it's, you know, getting a better pull up jump shot, getting more of getting any semblance of right hand, all these other things. And they can happen, but I'm, I'm, I think my, the, like, it's funny, every, every kind of weak draft class, I think teaches you a little bit more about how you think about basketball. And for me, one of the big ones for this one is players who have below average athleticism for their position. It just, you need so much in order to move up my board. Even if the even if the surrounding talent is is weak, and I mean that's not to say I hate Kelly and Hayes or anything like that. It's just that's always something you can fall back on. And so the players who have or who have some sort of unusually great strength, like you could, you talked about, like the the liveness of Lamelo Ball's game, like how his his on, his on ball stuff, and you know, and his ability to pass, like that is a strength that Killian Hayes doesn't have, and you you can't really learn that. You know, Killian Hayes' vision isn't terrible. But it's also not at that kind of a level. So, yeah, and Wiseman, I think, has a much is a much better physical talent. Even Edwards, I mean, as, as flawed as I, I think he is at times, you know. So those types of players, and then when you get in the next tier, well, then we're having a conversation. I think Killian Hayes is going to be in that, probably in that tier for me with a lot of other dudes. But yeah, that's why you know that 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 is a real challenge. Yeah, I mean, like I, I've got Killian Hayes. Like I have nobody is like a tier one prospect this year. Um, I have three guys. Like the main three guys is tier two guys and then i have a big group of tier three guys uh you know killian hayes is within that group Uh, i really think he can be a potential starting point guard in the nba but i'm not quite there with everyone else Uh, i agree with you and i think that the downside is real as well uh with killian in a way that uh doesn't really exist with halliburton so last guy i've watched in full is cole anthony and i don't see it (laughs) i don't see it like i mean so it's Anthony's fascinating yeah. for me because I've heard a lot about him because, you know, his his success on the, you know, on the kind of high school and youth circuits. And I missed the hoop summit that he played in. So this was the first I've seen of him. And he reminds me of a more physically talented, but not dramatically so, of those like really overqualified college caretaker point guards that just didn't work in the NBA because the advantages that they wielded just don't apply. Like, so I was trying to remember you probably, especially given your, where you were, like, I mean, I was trying to think of, there was a Howland era point guard for Pitt. Was it, was his last name Fields or something like that? LeVance Fields. LeVance Fields. Shout out LeVance Fields, baby. Who, I mean, Cole Anthony, significantly better than LeVance Fields as an NBA prospect. But I remember watching him in college just being like, and I didn't even know the NBA game that well then. It's just like, how does he get to get by, guys? You know, like that's sort of a basic question. And Cole Anthony, he, he gets to the foul line a ton, but he gets to the foul line a ton by like pump fakes and the stuff that unathletic guys do. And that's a big problem in college because you like you could do that in the pros if you are athletic enough to get to that level, but he's not, and that means to me he's not going to get those calls at the NBA level. I don't think his vision is unbelievable. His jump shot is certainly fine, but I don't think that he's going to be beating guys enough for that to be incredibly valuable on ball. So I, I'm just not there. And preliminarily, like I'm, I and yeah, I'm just not there. Yeah, I just tweeted, shout out LeVance Fields. No context. I <laughs> no just context. Want, just want people, people to know. People, people will get the context. Um, people will know. Yeah. Uh, no, like, so I think that what you're seeing is, and what the difference is between AAU basketball and college basketball is Cole Anthony was like a live wire athlete in the open floor in AAU basketball. 
like you would see him throw down some real dunks. You would see him like you go on YouTube right now. You can find some wild Cole Anthony dunks. Right. And he looked quicker and looked like just just like a much better athlete at the at the AAU level than he did in college. At the college level, it's more of a half court game. And ultimately, at the highest levels of the NBA game, it's more of a half court game. And his athleticism doesn't really play up in the half court because while he's not afraid of accepting and absorbing contact, like he likes to play through contact. Like he's a tough dude. Like there are some like NBA scouts that like have questions about like, is this dude who grew up like in a penthouse in Manhattan? Is he like an actual tough dude or is he kind of a fake tough guy? Like, I think he plays tough, to be honest. Like, I think he really wants it. The thing is, I don't think he retains his athleticism through contact and that explosiveness through contact as well as what you would hope to see from a point guard. Like, he often got compared to Derrick Rose when he was younger. Derrick Rose didn't just play through contact. He exploded through contact at the basket. De'Aaron Fox, yeah, he's really skinny. And sometimes you can like knock him off his pace. But like he plays through contact when leaping at the basket because he's just an explosive athlete. Cole isn't really that. And I think that that's why we saw this year go a little bit worse in terms of efficiency for him than what was expected. Now, you can look at the team situation. I think that, you know, I'm, I'm going to pull these numbers off the top of my head like I don't have them in front of me. Uh, North Carolina shot, if you take Cole's three-pointers out of North Carolina, North Carolina shot like 28% from three last year. And every time that North Carolina that he drove, he had like one guy coming from the perimeter digging down on his handle. And then on top of it, they played two bigs in a majority of his minutes. So, you know, Armando Baycott and Garrison Brooks are standing within 10 feet of the rim. He'd have a second uh, rim protector coming over on a drive. Oh, and then he'd have someone contesting from behind or contesting from the side. So he had it really hard last year. North Carolina also tends not to run a lot of pick and roll actions. Uh, Even last year when they had Kobe White, right? Uh, They still were in the bottom 50 teams nationally in possessions finished in pick and roll, according to Synergy. Same deal this year, right? They were in the bottom 50 teams in pick and roll finished possessions. I think if you put Cole Anthony in a more ball screen heavy offense that is well-spaced, He's going to look better as a passer. He's going to look better in terms of shot selection. Like he's going to look generally like a better player. I'm not convinced though that like the upside with Cole Anthony is anything beyond bottom half of the league starting point guard or top half of the league like backup point guard. I might not even have the first half, the first half of what you just said, you know, as much. I, I, I just don't. I don't see how he beats defenders enough to 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 cause help to make to make those looks. It's possible. I'm not. I, ne- I would never totally f- foreclose on somebody that young and who has the kind of track record. It would just. It would be a big big thing for me. Yeah. No. For sure. And I. I totally get that. Uh, my concern is more. What happens if he is a volume shooter? Even beyond like what I just said. Right. What happens if he's a volume shooter more than a guy that can knock down 38% of his threes? He probably turns into something resembling Austin Rivers, right? Like something in that vein. That's fine. Uh, It's not 
it's not great for a top 10 pick. Uh, it's probably not even what you really want from a top 20 pick. I have Cole at like 17, 18, 19, 20 right now. He is all over the map. If you talk to NBA teams, he's all over the place. I would say his draft range is more uncertain going into draft night than anyone else in the NBA. Interesting. Um, I haven't watched all the film on him yet, but it was funny. One of the games I watched, not surprisingly for Cole Anthony, was the game they played against Alabama. Kyra Lewis popped. I'm, I'm yeah. not. I haven't watched enough film yet to know if if that, how that athleticism applies. But he had more wild plays in the first ten minutes of that game than Cole Anthony did in the whole damn thing. Yeah, agree. I mean, I have Kyra ahead of Cole Anthony. Uh, Kyra is very similar to De'Aaron Fox. If you take away De'Aaron's explosive leaping ability, uh, interesting. De'Aaron's De'Aaron's a better prospect because De'Aaron is a better finisher around the basket than Kyra Lewis is. De'Aaron is also probably like five to ten percent quicker, but Kyra Lewis is still going to enter the NBA probably in the top, let's say, ten percent of speedy point guards in the NBA. De'Aaron Fox might just be like in the top two or three, right? Kyra Lewis has that same scoring mindset, has the ability to get in and out of the paint when he wants, has a bit of a stiff shot. Like it's not as fluid getting in and out of the pull-ups is what you'd like to see, but I think he's probably going to be able to do so. Um, the other thing with Kyrie is too, I, I will note is I think he's going to be able to play off the ball. You look at his uh, jumpers off the catch. Uh, they're much stronger than uh, most starting point guards. Cole Anthony's are strong as well, which makes me think that, you know, you could also play him next to a big wing initiator and it would work. Mm-hmm. Like if you put him in Milwaukee, like I actually think that'd be an interesting fit. If you put Kyra Lewis in, I'm trying to think of a team like in the top 10, you, you put him in Phoenix and put him next to Devin Booker, I think that'd actually be like a terrifying fit. Yeah, and, and with Lewis, I don't think there's necessarily a guarantee. Like, I, And again, I haven't watched enough film on him. I, he might not end up being like a starter closer for great teams, but you need guys who can fit with your good players, even if they don't start. And I think Lewis could, that could be an intriguing place for him as well. Yeah. And by the way, like that's what the margins are Yeah, whenever it comes to like guy being De'Aaron Fox, just like five to 10% less quick and 50% less bouncy. Uh, like that, that's the difference with these guys. Like that is how you go from being, you know, De'Aaron Fox, who I think is one of the like 15 or so most interesting guys on rookie scale contracts in the NBA to Kyra Lewis, who is more of like a, again, like I think probably more likely to be a middle tier starting point guard in the NBA. And like, that's not super sexy, right? Like uh, we like Mike Conley a lot, but if you're like the tier below Mike Conley, like everyone likes you and you're a great player and you get paid for a long time, but like, that's not an incredible pickup, right? Yeah, I think that's fair. And Mike Conley is another name that I get a lot with Kyra Lewis as well, I should Hmm. say. Yeah. Uh, you know, guy that is very, very fast. When Mike entered the NBA, he was very, very fast. Um, you know, more of a scorer's mindset, but a good enough live dribble passer. Uh, the thing that Kyra really improved on this year was playing at tempo in the half court. Uh, he used to just be like a zoom, like all the time. Like he was just speed, 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 going as fast as he can. And he slowed it down this year. He waited, was able to diagnose defenses a little bit better, saw where the second and third level of help was coming from. And he's still really young. He is 19 years old. He was the youngest player to play in college basketball as a freshman in 2018-19. This is essentially a college basketball freshman just that has played two years of college basketball. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. Um, 
I, I'm, I know you and I are going to have a chance to talk, you know, kind of like after the draft and there's so much uncertainty. Is there anything else that you think is particularly, you know, like worth fascinating, like something that, that listeners should keep an eye on, especially if they paid less attention to this college class? Hmm. I really like the point guard depth in this class. Um, it's really hard for me right now to determine where all of those guys are going to go. Like, I, I would say that, like, Cassius Winston's range right now is, like, bottom five picks of the first round all the way down to, like, 50. Same way with Grant Riller. Like, I would say bottom five picks of the first round all the way down to, like, 50. Uh, you know, like, Skylar Mays. Like, there are teams that really like Skylar Mays because he can play on the ball and off the ball, and he's one of the smartest players in the draft. That guy could, call, that guy could pretty easily fall to 50. Uh, Peyton Pritchard... I voted Peyton Pritchard third this year in national player of the year because uh, I have a Naismith vote. Like I have Peyton Pritchard at like 39 on my board right now. I really love the point guard depth in this class. I think it's awesome. And there are going to be a lot of really, really good point guards that are still on the board late in this draft. Uh, so if you need a good point guard and you need a role playing point guard, this is the draft to get one. Additionally, the bigs in this class are really interesting. Finding homes for guys like Isaiah Stewart, Precious Achua, uh, Xavier Tillman, Jalen Smith, Zeke Naji, Daniel Aturu, uh, Yudoka Azubuke is a guy that has some fans out there. Killian Tilly is a guy that teams really like from a skill level perspective, but they have no idea if he can stay healthy. Guys like that are really tough to pin down in terms of they could go as early as like number 21 all the way down to like 45. And it's just because imagine a world where everyone really likes Daniel Aturu, but Daniel Aturu is second on everyone's board at a time when everyone else is just on the board ahead of him. It's kind of what happened with DeAnthony Melton when DeAnthony Melton was in the draft and fell all the way down to 48. A lot of teams like the Anthony Mountain, they just had a guy ahead of him on their board at the end of the day and kept passing on on him, kept passing on him. And he stumbled down to like 48, if I remember correctly. That could really happen to a few guys in this draft. I have something like 48 draftable grades in this draft in terms of guys that I think should get guaranteed deals. That's very high for me. Um, typically the number is closer to like 40 to 45. This one's going to be more like 48, 49, 50, uh, in this class. As soon as I finish up the last point that I will bring up, there are shooters in this class that are really rising up. The more that I talk to teams, guys like Isaiah, Joe, Jordan, Wara, Justinian, Jessup, even at Boise state, uh, Emmanuel quickly has some fans out there. Sam Merrill's a guy that really has fans. Uh, these guys, Teams are looking at what happened in the playoffs, what happened with Duncan Robinson, what happened with Tyler Hero, what happened with just how important being able to shoot from a variety of different situations is. And they're wondering if they should take flyers on these guys, you know, early second round, mid second round, just knowing that shooting is the most important skill for a role player in today's NBA. Why not take flyers on the guys that already have that elite level skill down? Yeah, there's a, a lot to take in there, and I'm I'm excited yet yeah, to see how these different the the idea of this class having a lot of role players and understanding yep. role players that don't necessarily have star or in some cases starter upside, and that you do select for different things in those. And and it's also true that players in that with that projection sometimes exceed it. You could think of somebody like Draymond Green potentially. I mean, granted, he's the yep. thing for everything, but you know you you get the idea. 
And, I mean, Duncan Robinson far exceeded it, right? Yeah. But and having a having a a high end skill like a skill that that can withstand the transfer is one of the easiest ways to do it. Or being an NBA caliber athlete, but that's why they're usually taken a different part in the draft. Uh, something else that you and I have fixated on for years now, and I'm really that's maybe the single thing I'm most excited about in this class is. The importance of 48 good minutes of point guard. And one of the key ways that that happens, I mean, everybody thinks about the starter line and the stars, which are you certainly should, because that's that's the biggest thing. You know, if every team could have James Harden, every team's offense would be great. But a big part of 48 minutes is the second and third creators that you have. And I think that this class, while not everybody will cash out, I, I'm hopeful that enough guys will, even on the kind of rotation line, to really help that. You know, not at, yep. like like the kind of more in the like Monte Morris is a great success story, kind of of yep. that group of you know probably not going to be a starter, but an important part of a exceedingly successful team and somebody who's going to have a good who's going to have a good long career. And if this class can produce players of that tier and below, but that are still definite rotation players, the league will be much better for it. Yeah, and I think that that's this is the draft to get that guy. Like I love Malachi Flynn. Uh, I think that he has a chance to be a you know bottom half of the league starting point guard. Uh, Trey Jones, I really like Trey Jones a lot. I like Tyrell Terry quite a bit, although I think that the floor is a lot lower for Tyrell Terry than where people. Uh, are currently placing it. Uh, there are guys that like I didn't even mention in that previous like rundown of point guards where I'm like, look, these guys are really good. Like Trey Jones, that guy was the ACC player of the year, the defensive player of the year. He's a tough as hell defender. He has a lot more athleticism than what I think people give him credit for on the ground. He became a good shooter off the catch this year. His pull-up game is still a total disaster. And uh, you could certainly make a case the pull-up game is the most important part of a point guard shooting repertoire. Uh, but if you place Trey Jones in a circumstance where he is next to a big wing initiator, I mean, he can be like kind of a starting point guard. Like Trey Jones to me is, uh, I've kind of talked about this before, I'm sure, but like, do you remember Kyle Lowry when he was playing with like Memphis and like before he started starting in Houston? Yeah. And like really started shooting it in Houston. Like that's where Trey Jones is right now. That's still an effective NBA player. It's not like the sexiest thing in the world. And where Kyle Lowry made the leap from, you know, that level to all star to a guy that I think has a very real Hall of Fame case and very well might get in. Uh, is becoming a volume three-point shooter. I wouldn't predict that for Trey Jones. But like everyone is saying like, oh yeah, this is a guy that doesn't have a lot of upside. He does literally everything other than shoot from a shoot at a high level and finish at the basket. Everything else he's going to provide for you. He's a great ball mover. He's a great defender. Uh, he plays decisively. He's happy to play a role. Uh, he doesn't care about his stats. Like, those are all things that you look for in a role-playing point guard next to these big wing initiators. And as we as we see the proliferation of those players, I think guys at the point guard position that do a lot of different shit become even more valuable, uh, even if they aren't necessarily like the wild high-level creators that we're used to seeing at the point guard position. Yeah, that's definitely exciting, and we'll kind of see how their roles evolve as the game continues to. And I mean, the when they hit their primes, the sport will be different than it is right now. And some of them, I think, yeah. have games well suited to fit that. Yeah, definitely. I think that's like a thousand percent right. 
Well, you and I could talk for a long time about a lot more things, but I think I, I, I think we'll save that for another day. Thank you so much, as always, for taking the time. Yeah, of course, Danny, anytime. Thanks again to Sam Vecini for taking time to come on. You can continue to read his excellent work at The Athletic, and you can listen to the Game Theory podcast that he does, and you can follow him, if you don't somehow on Twitter, at Sam underscore Vecini, S-A-M underscore V-E-C-E-N-I-E. Love having him on. I presume we will do something around the draft. It might not be an immediate reaction because he has so many things on his plate, but, you know, some point after that, we will do so, and this is going to be a very different timeline. It looks like nothing is absolutely official yet, but we're getting towards that, and of course, Real Gym Radio will be every week, irrespective of whether there are games or immediate signings or the draft or anything else, so uh, that's a great reason to stay subscribed and download every episode because there will always be a new one, but it will not be on a consistent day. And word of mouth is also another important way to support the podcast. Tell people you like this episode or the show in general. That can really help people find it. And then the other way you can help people find the show is leaving a rating, leaving a review. Podcast player of your choosing. Just like for subscribing, you can do that in Spotify or Apple Podcasts or really wherever else. And it's great if you can leave a review in Apple because they're still they. it's the most important place to do it. But honestly, wherever uh, that, that has them, I think that can help. Lots of material on my end as well. I'm working now that I've finished the off-season preview. All 30 of those are available through my through my page, and then there are links as well. Working on other stuff. Have a piece coming out on Friday about which I had talked about with Sam, about the teams that should wait and the teams that should be more aggressive this offseason, kind of the thought process that might be going on with how teams manage 2020 versus 2021, which is something that I was trying to wrap my brain around and wanted to do. And, and now, like, having the flexibility to work on other projects is, you know, I'm, I'm, there are a lot of things that I want to try to do in the next couple weeks as we figure this out, though I might have a little less time than I thought I might, which is fine can also listen to Dunked On. Uh, Nate and I are still doing our weekly free episode, and then for Dunked On Prime, we've been on a lighter schedule. We both took a little bit of a break after the finals, and then we will be back to full-time starting next week. So you can get the free episode on Sundays, and then you can get, or Monday mornings for most people, and then you can get the um, the other ones for Dunked On Prime. Those come out basically daily. We're still pretty much usually on the same schedule as before. If you have any feedback on my on this show or honestly on my whole work, uh, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com is the way to convey that to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I will respond if I can. And it's better to do it there than on Twitter because Twitter is so ephemeral. And I have a special place in my inbox that I, I read everything. I do that before I go to bed every night. I make sure that gets kind of gets everything gets handled there. And that's all for now. So. This is a fun period and got a little bit of a rest now before things get crazy again, but it's only probably a week or two and I'm extremely excited. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.